We're going to begin on time to honor those who came early. In in one minute. And while we wait, I thought you'd be disappointed if I didn't show you a picture. This is my all-time favorite picture of our girls. Now, if you open the second page of Seven Secrets, you'll see them 38 and 40 several years ago. Three and five. I'm going to talk to you this morning uh, for a bit. This is a primer, a little technical. I hope it's, uh, I hope you're up for technicalities this early in the morning. Your doctor says to you, I want to check your blood fats. He turns to the nurse and he says, do a lipid panel on this patient. It's a term. uh, when the doctor says blood fats, it's a dumb down. These things bother me, these dumb downs for the lay people. And um, do you know what I mean? Some of you lay people are dumb. I mean, some of you. <laughs> so blood fats in quotes means more than fat. It means lipids. And a definition is stuff that's like fat. If you put a lipid between your fingers, it would feel greasy or oily. Now, that's not the chemical definition, but it's a pretty practical definition. And uh, what what are some of these things? Of course, fat itself is fat-like. Would you agree? Come on, you guys. Would you agree? Fat is a lipid. It's a lipid. I'd like you to memorize from now on. The word triglyceride is a synonym for the word fat. So when the doctor says your triglycerides are high, he means in your blood. That's where he's talking about. You also may have some triglycerides around here, but that's not what he's talking about. When he says your triglycerides are high, he's talking about the triglycerides that are found in the blood, too, too much of them. Just it's fat. That's, that's the, uh, but there are other lipids besides fat. One is diglyceride. Monoglycerides, you're familiar with those terms. These things do not occur in nature, actually. Uh, they're products of manufacturing. And so uh, companies use them because they can say there's no fat in this and they can put diglycerides and monoglycerides in there. And if not, it's not fat, not technically, because technically a triglyceride is a fat. You all with me? But diglycerides and monoglycerides, when you eat them, the body turns them into fat. So a pound of these things turns into a pound of fat. And where do they get those from? Manufacturing processes. Is that animal it could be either. It could be either. Good, good question. Is it an animal or a vegetable product? Now, these things do occur in your gut. When your body takes a triglyceride and digests it, it has to cut off two of the legs. It's now a monoglyceride. I'll show you a picture of this. And uh, so in your gut, there are diglycerides. Monoglycerides, in order to get absorbed, and then the body turns them back into triglycerides, just like it does the other monoglycerides and triglycerides that you eat, if you could follow all of that. 
Cholesterol is a lipid. And a phospholipid is another type of uh, lipid, very similar to a triglyceride, a little different. These lipids can be saturated and unsaturated. So this little primer is, what are they, these lipids, and what do they mean to you? Take some blood from a vein, put it in a test tube. After about 20 minutes of settling, you put it in a centrifuge and spin it fairly hard. And the clot, or the red blood cells, it's called the hematocrit, is pulled to the bottom of the test tube. And what's sitting above it is a nearly clear liquid we call serum. And in fact... Your doctor will not say this to you, but when we talk about cholesterol, what we're really saying is blood serum cholesterol. How much cholesterol is in the serum? You all with me? Now, you could say in the blood, but where we actually measure it is in the serum because we get the the red blood cells out of the way so we can more easily do chemistry, do chemistry on the rest of the things that are in there. And... uh, That serum is full of stuff still. White blood cells, uh, all the nutrients that your body gets are in the serum. The vitamins, the minerals, the phytochemicals are all there. Now, the question I have for you this morning is, where is the fat? It's kind of a clever little thing, but that's really the question. How does your body handle lipids? Where are they? How do they travel? What do they do once they get where they're going? Many years ago, like in the early 50s, Late 50s, scientists took some serum and put it in a faster centrifuge. It's called ultra-centrifugation. And they spun it for 24 hours. This is really high-speed stuff, right? And uh, even though there are substances dissolved in that water, if you spin them hard enough, some of the heavier ones will actually release from being dissolved. Does that make sense? and pull to the bottom of that test tube. And so they found a little substrate, if you wish, at the bottom. And they were curious to know what was the, what it was, of course. They saw immediately that it was in layers. Uh, and they knew what that meant. They knew that there were differences in densities. They put it under a microscope. That portion right there turned out to look like this. You can't see it as clearly on the bottom with the darker than the top with the lighter. But what they found there was a bunch of little spheres. So the question is, what's in those spheres, right? That was him, not you. You didn't need to run. I'm expecting. (laughs) Good morning, Helbleys. Nice to see you. So, yeah. So in them little spheres are the lipids. Them little spheres are water-soluble. The lipids are not. You know this. Fat does not solubilize in water. Isn't that correct? French dressing, you have to shake it and pour it quickly before it separates, right? See? So the creator designed, watch this, the creator designed some transporting vehicles for lipids. Y'all with me in the idea? If it wasn't for that, the lipids would pool at the top of places where the blood vessels would go, right? So these are the transporting uh, vehicles, and they have a name, a generic name. When the scientists first found this, they found four different kinds of, I'm going to call them trucks. 
these transporting vehicles, these little spheres that are water-soluble. They're very tiny, microscopically tiny. They found four of them. Today we know of 18 of them. Uh, And it's a college course for a year, frankly. In fact, it's a postdoctoral PhD course if you really want to learn everything about it. But we're going to just look at four of them briefly. It, the, the basic concepts are there. And the least dense were bigger. And the less, slightly less dense were a little smaller. Smaller still, more dense, and smallest, most dense. You all played marbles when you were kids, didn't you? A steely. Did you call them that? Even the same size as a clover. Did you call them that? Remember the, remember the glass ball with the little clover leaf in it or whatever? Cat's eyes, is that what it was called? Anyway, they can be the same size, but one is heavier because it's denser. I know you know the idea, but um, that's what's going on here. And uh, the, the, gen, the, the general name for all of these, even though they each have their individual names, there is a, a name for the whole category uh, derived... Oh, this is what was in them, about the same things that we saw before. This is not a a lipid, but it turns out, as I'll show you a picture in a minute, that the protein connected with these things is quite important. And so they have to name these things. That's where I was going. So they took the word lipo or L-I-P from lipid. And because protein was critical, in fact, what's going on is this. These trucks have proteins on the surface, and that's how the body tells which truck it is. Got that? Protein sticking out. And so the protein part, it turns out, is quite critical in terms of the way these things work. So they included that name in the trucks. So these trucks are called lipoproteins. How many have heard the term? Good. Lipoproteins. Now, you all know what I'm about to show you. These trucks are not colored. Uh, This is the... I just did it for clarification. This is the proper size ratio. I actually took the measurements and made these balls the proper uh, relation to each other. Uh, density increases like this. The smaller they are, the more dense they are. And we, So the scientists named this one high-density lipoprotein. You may not know that term, but you all know HDL, don't you? You maybe didn't know what HDL was. But now you do. And I didn't tell you that the last day of the camp meeting, we're going to have a quiz and you don't get samples unless you get all the answers. No, it's all right. High density. The next one, uh, just remarkable, uh, remarkable insight in naming these things. Low density lipoprotein. LDL. Now, you're all familiar with these two for this reason. Most of the cholesterol is carried in these two particles, these two trucks. And what is the gold standard? Let me back up. When I started in this work 35 years ago, there were nine risk factors for heart disease. It was the number one killer then, as it is today. Although in some categories, you may know this, in some age categories, cancer is now exceeding death rates of heart disease for older people not yet middle-aged people. There were nine risk factors. Uh, Cholesterol, smoking, diabetes, 
obesity, maleness, history behind you, hypertension. There's one more. We knew of nine risk factors for heart disease. Thank you. That was bothering me, too. Um, Today, would you like to guess or does somebody know how many risk factors we know of for heart disease? 15 or 20? Would you say something? 250 and more. Well, it's a good question how we're supposed to deal with that. By the way, one of the risk factors is male pattern baldness. For cancer? Heart disease. You're okay, you're a female anyway, so. The reason people, the reason men generally have male pattern baldness is because they make a little more testosterone than the rest of the men. And testosterone is a risk factor for heart disease. So you could say they're sort of the same thing, but nevertheless. And another thing is, if you have earlobes with a crease. I got only one side. I mean, I'm fortunate, fortunate. I don't want you to get sidetracked. That was just for fun. The point I'm trying to make, and don't miss this point, is... That of all, watch this carefully, this is very, very interesting and useful. Of all those risk factors, this thing isn't feeling as good today as it did before. It was squeezing a little too much. I don't use the tape anyway. Um, Of all those risk factors, the uh, big elephant in the room is cholesterol. How much cholesterol is in your blood? A. And if you take All of the other risk factors, you only increase the accuracy of predicting heart disease by 3%. So the cholesterol and what I'm going to share with you about some, some facets of it is the big elephant in the room. Now, my dad died of heart disease. His dad died of heart disease. So I've got some big risk issues. But uh, if my cholesterol is kept kept properly, uh, I'm not at much risk actually after all because of this thing I was describing. All these other risk factors don't contribute a great deal in comparison to having the cholesterol in check. Now, do you remember the first day we were together? I I had you do something like this. Do you remember that? What did that zero represent? How much cholesterol was in all plant, plant products? Do you remember that? Does that give you a little hint about where you might go with preventing heart disease? Yeah, right. By the way, there's another zero you should remember. That's how much fiber is in all animal products. What did I say? Zero. Does that give you a little hint about where you might want to go for better health? Like uh, go and not go, as you say. Anyway, uh, go ahead. I'm coming to the other two in a minute. I just got sidetracked. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sidetrack is my middle name. <laughs> now, uh, just for fun, if you know, you can't answer. But uh, what do you suppose with this bright idea of naming these things, we would name the next one? How about medium? How about even lower? E, 
L. Actually, they called it very low lipoprotein. And uh, now let's try one more time. What shall we name this last one? Even lower? Hopelessly low? (laughs) Well, somebody had already found this one and named it. So the rules in science say you can't change it. So it's a chylomicron. Now, the reason... My sidetrack was this. The reason um, all of you know about these two is because this is where most of the cholesterol is. And because cholesterol is the big elephant, we don't talk much about the chylomicrons and the VLDL. There are some of the others of the 18. I'm just going to show you briefly a picture of of how some of them work. But this is a drawing. This is the general structure of these trucks. Uh, I'd love to talk about it longer than I have, but the outside of this thing is water-soluble and the inside of this thing makes fat comfortable. You, you remember the term hydrophobic and hydrophilic? You probably don't remember that. This thing either loves water or it hates water. Hydrophobic, hydrophilic. And so the, the Lord designed this thing to be soluble in water, but the fat particles inside are not trying to get away from the inside because the inside is like it's comfortable with fat. Very interesting story. Anyway, uh, these vertical bars measure how much fat is in these particles and how much cholesterol. So where is most of the cholesterol? In the, the two on the right. This is why we all know about them now. By the way, you all know that the HDL is good and the LDL is bad cholesterol, right? Hmm. Not too much response. No, it's actually H for, if you want to have a memory gimmick, high, good, H, L, low, bad. Um, but uh, here's the interesting thing. This, this makes me mad again. Uh, the cholesterol in these two trucks is exactly the same. There isn't such a thing as good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Cholesterol? No, they're not. We we use. She said they're both bad. We use cholesterol all over our body. Every cell uses prodigious amounts of cholesterol. So there is no such thing as bad cholesterol. There's a such a thing as having too much A or B, having it oxidized. Does that sound familiar from day one? That's that's what's bad. In fact. If you didn't have LDL, which is the so-called bad cholesterol, if if it was suddenly removed from your body, I I don't know that you could live several hours. And the doctor says, that's the bad cholesterol. It just makes me mad. Because this stuff is, you know, you could teach this stuff to grade schoolers, couldn't you? This stuff is not that horribly technical. And we ought to be, and we ought to be growing up in this country with some knowledge about our bodies that we don't have. But nevertheless, these are the two actors that you hear about. And the idea is, I'm skipping about a 45-minute part of this lecture, uh, that, oh, I didn't. Part of that part of that lecture is, I pretend like the LDL is UPS and the HDL is FedEx. And... Uh, <laughs> But that takes a while to explain. The only problem, folks, with the LDL is when you have too much of it. That's the problem. It's not bad. We need it. In fact, the LDL trucks are involved in a mechanism which controls how much cholesterol our body makes. 
There's a feedback mechanism. And uh, if the LDL trucks aren't present doing their job, the body keeps on making cholesterol. Most of the cholesterol is made in your liver. There's a little bit made in some other places, but probably 90% of it is made in the liver. And the liver makes it until the LDL trucks have this message system that says, we've got enough. It's when you eat cholesterol. See, there's two sources. I mentioned this, didn't I, the first day? Uh, your body makes it, and it can be in foods that you eat. What kind of foods would you eat that would have cholesterol in them? Animal products. Anything that has a face or a mother has cholesterol in it, including you and me. We make our own just like other animals. We are animals, right? In fact, we're unclean animals. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. That's why you shouldn't be a a cannibal, among other reasons. Do women's bodies make more cholesterol than men's? I'm, I'm not aware of that. Uh, our bodies make cholesterol depending on, for example, I mentioned this the first day too. Our bodies make cholesterol. I didn't tell you why. There's a hundred, well, there's many, many reasons. But one of the, one of the issues here is our bodies make cholesterol because bile is almost pure cholesterol and bile is like the soap, uh, to digest fat. Uh, there's a word we use, you know the word, emulsifies the fat. It's a little different than that, a more technical system, but it's the idea. So, and did you catch this the first day we were together? When you eat saturated fat, your body makes more cholesterol than when you eat unsaturated fat. This is the principal reason why when people replace saturated fat with nuts, which most of the fat is what? In nuts. Because most of the fat in the plants is unsaturated in general, right? Except for two or three uh, exceptions. This is why, this is, follow this point. This is why when people eat nuts in place of some meat, there's much less heart disease. And remember those little vertical bars I showed you real fast at the beginning? And I said that heart disease is reduced by 35, maybe to 50% if people just eat nuts five times or more a week. Remember that? replacing some animal products with the nut products. Are you with me? The, the, the mechanism is your body makes less cholesterol when you eat unsaturated fat. Plus, that, that fat, that, uh, the meat that they took out of their diet to replace it with the nuts, that meat also had some cholesterol. You all with me? So you kind of get a double benefit there. And that's, that's the mechanism, as we say, that makes the heart disease less. Well, um, for many Many decades, we thought in the medical community that the reason, the way people got a heart attack was that this, this buildup, this plaque would just get more and more, get larger and larger until it closed off the artery and then people would die from a heart attack. But didn't I mention this to you? That the, yeah, that it can break and the, and the, it can ooze out and so, um, uh, the, the, the plaque can be safe if we eat correctly. Now, in closing this portion here, uh, here's the idea. LDL trucks deliver cholesterol, which is important. We, do we need to deliver this stuff that we need all over our body? Yes. They deliver it. And the, and the, and the HDL trucks, trucks pick it up and take it to the liver liver where it's metabolized. It's a fancy word for taking it apart. So it's no longer cholesterol. You all with me on that? And so if you have enough HDL trucks picking up cholesterol 
when it's no longer needed or when there's a little extra. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of LDL trucks delivering it. Make sense? You're not nodding. I'm a teacher. You've got to nod. Don't sit there and look like this. Nod. The HDL trucks pick up cholesterol, carry it to the liver where it's disassembled. So you can have an awful lot of LDL trucks if you have enough HDL trucks taking care of what's not needed and, and you cannot get heart disease. In fact, in Framingham, you remember about Framingham, the bedroom community in Boston where they have been following these heart, these, these men to begin with and later they included females. There are people who have blood serum cholesterols of 300 with no heart disease. Why? Lots of HDL. So as scientists, y'all with me, you're, you're sitting there awfully quiet. You're scaring me a little bit. Thinking. Okay, very, very good. Yeah. <laughs> so um, as the scientists learned this, uh, they devised a way to measure risk by trying to determine about how many HDL trucks you would need in comparison to the LDLs. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Now, in the beginning, like I mean in the, in the late 50s and early 60s, the blood chemistry, requ- the chemistry required to figure out how much of these particles there were was expensive and difficult. And so all the, what they decided to do was to compare the picker-upper trucks, the HDL trucks, you all with me? To compare that with all the cholesterol. It would have made more sense if they would have compared the picker-uppers to the deliverers. That makes you follow what I'm saying? It would have been more intuitive. But they started out by simply taking a ratio of the picker-uppers divided into the total amount of cholesterol carried by all the trucks. You all with me on that? And that number, you knew about this, you've known about this. For many years, we said to people, that ratio should be at, at, at no bigger than four. Now, think about this. Um, which... If you have some risk for heart disease, you're worried about that. Which which of these would you like to be bigger? The, the picker-upper. And so if the picker-upper gets larger, what happens to this whole fraction here? When the denominator is bigger, what happens to the whole number? It gets smaller. So the idea was the ratio should be four or less. You all with me on the idea? That's what we, we were taught for many years. Now, in the last decade... We're actually beginning to say it's a little risky to be at four. Maybe it ought to be three and a half. So that's the new standard. And your blood chemistry panels, they will tell you it ought to be three and a half uh, if possible to get it that low. Here's here's an example. Uh, I'm going to make this real simple. If the total cholesterol is 200 and you divide it by 50, what would the number be? Four. You all with me on the idea? This is the ratio that's on all of your blood chemistry panels now. If you've ever looked at it, it tells you what the ratio is. And and it shows you a a, a safe range. And the top of the safe range is now supposed to be three and a half instead of four, like it used to be. Here is Jim Brackett. uh, Because my father has heart had died of heart disease and his dad did too. Well, let me say this. The average person on the kind of a diet that Neva and I eat would have a cholesterol below 100. 
Mine has been 176 ever since I started measuring it 50 years ago. And uh, I'm at risk. But if I have enough, well, here's, here's what my cholesterol was for one period of my life when I was too busy and not exercising like I should. It was 27, the HDL. What's the ratio? Not very good news. Uh, in many, for many, many years now, uh, my HDL has been 48. And so what's the number? I'm not too, I'm pretty pleased with that given my background, right? It's, it's, it's tough for me to get my cholesterol down anymore and it's, and I do a lot of exercise. We took the afternoon off yesterday and took a five mile hike or more, um, and, and so forth. So, uh, now here's the interesting thing. Dr. Clarence Ng, how many know the name? A lot of you. My dear friend and I traveled all over the place together lecturing. And he has this little gadget that, that uses ultrasound to examine your carotid arteries. How many have had him do it? Let me look at this. Okay. And so we're often traveling together and he's doing this and I don't want mine checked. <laughs> Sounds like yesterday. Now I'm going to make it clear. I just don't want to embarrass the cause. You all with me? Yeah. Here I am, this health educator. I had an experience like that that was really difficult for me. Uh, I, I think it's because I was raised on a ranch and we didn't know any better. We had a T-bone steak every night and I drank three glasses of milk with every meal. And we had cream that was free. I mean, we milked our cows and we had 5,000 chickens. I mean, woo! We had eggs and everything. So uh, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 1989. I was the um, I was the conference evangelist, but I was also the conference health ministries director, and I was so embarrassed for the cause. You understand? Was it 98, dear? I'm sorry. And uh, anyway, that's a long story. But uh, so. I don't want to embarrass the cause. And so whenever Clarence is doing this, I try to act a little busy over here somewhere. <laughs> it was just a year ago at ASI. Uh, we were in Florida. Or was it two years? Doesn't matter. And uh, it was late in the day. People were pretty much gone. The line was gone. And he says, hey, Jim, let me check yours. Well, at least nobody was around. But... Uh, Here's the interesting thing, folks. You know what? My, my carotid arteries are just as clean as a whistle. And not only that, the thickness of the walls. This is another issue we haven't discussed, but the thickness of the wall is an issue, too, because the, the artery becomes less flexible and, and uh, the thickness of my arterial walls is within a, you know, an acceptable range. So even though I had this huge risk because of no hair? My dad and his dad? Baldness? Male pattern baldness, it's called. Yeah, yeah, you don't have to worry. No. <laughs> so tell me, if, if they ate wrong and you ate wrong at a young age, and you were saying yesterday that genetically your, your, your chromosomes change, so... Oh, so his question is, what about my... Yeah, let me let me express what I think you're saying. His question is, uh, did my behavior, the way I was living in those days, uh, alter my DNA so that I'm still at even more risk? 
I think the answer is partly yes. We, we don't have real definitive information on this yet. We know that it happens, but we don't have enough information to know what that means for the long term in terms of a study that shows that this is the result. Well, I understand that if a mom, when, before she gets pregnant, is eating a lot of carrots, and then while she's pregnant, you know, drinking carrot juice and all this, thing, the kids that are born tend to like carrots more than if that hadn't been. Yeah, I, I, you all probably could hear that. The idea was if a, if a pregnant mother eats a certain kind of food a lot, uh, are the kids going to like that food? I'm not sure that that's been shown. Uh, there is uh, there is data today that the scientists are publishing that shows that our our uh, our lifestyle does affect our genes. We don't have really good information yet to show the details of what that means over the long term. It's probably coming, but let me get on with this here. And uh, this is this is from the Framingham Heart Study. And what we have is two what we call distributions. I'd love to discuss what that means, but I'll, I'm assuming you kind of know. The people under the yellow, we, this is the terminology we use. The people under this curve or under the yellow line in this case, they are the ones that do not get uh, heart disease, uh, that, get, that get heart disease. And the people under the black line are the ones that do not get heart disease. And so what you have here, I didn't tell you this, but let me just mention it. Dr. William Castelli, the director of this study for 40 years, uh, he's the world, he was the world's leading and most respected heart researcher because he was directing this program. Uh, we were traveling together one time before this was published, discussing these things, and he said to me, do you know what? He said, we have never found anybody yet in uh, uh, Framingham that got heart disease if their cholesterol was 150 or less. I was very amazed and interested. And uh, it's published now. It's been out for several years. Uh, and this is what this graph is showing. The people that do not, the people that get heart disease uh, stop at 150 down here. You all with me on where I'm pointing? If you can see past me. And there are people, watch this, in the black line, these are the people that do not get heart disease. There are people that have cholesterols as high as 300 that get no heart disease. Y'all with me in this now? I'm repeating what I said before. Uh, and so why are they not getting heart disease? Because they have enough HDL. HDL. Very, very interesting. See, I don't recommend those high cholesterols. But if you do everything you can to get it down and you can't, then you want to do everything, your total cholesterol, then you want to do everything you can to get your HDL higher. And you all, you'll probably all know the number one, the, the number one, uh, e, the, the highest uh, effector for that is activity, exercise, powerful. You saw the difference for me, didn't you, from 27 to 48. And the only thing I can think of that we did differently was what I was really busy in this administrative work there for a few years. And I was trying to get some activity, but it wasn't enough. And it could have been other things. It could have been stress and so on. Was there one other hand beside this one that came up? Oh, is it possible to have too, too low cholesterol? We think that that's, that that's not the case. By the way, there was a time about 15 years ago when, when the scientists were saying, ha, you're having, you don't have enough cholesterol, you're getting cancer. But it was a cause and effect, not an effect and cause. The cancer was causing the lipids to be low, not the other way around. Same thing with, with very thin people. They were saying, aha, 
Thin people are getting cancer, but it was the cancer that made them thin, see? So today, you talk to scientists that, 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 are, that are informed, and they know that there is no such thing as being too thin, as long as something else isn't going on to cause it. You understand what I mean? Some other kind of debilitating condition. I, I was wondering, because <clears throat> when we go to Europe and we tell them about our cholesterol, they laugh. They say, here, cholesterol is 300 or 400, and the doctor doesn't say a thing. Well, so is there a different mechanism? The, the, the question he's raising is the people in Europe uh, don't seem to have the same standard. They don't worry about the cholesterol unless it's very high. And uh, But the answer is no. It doesn't matter what your race is. Uh, these, the, this, these cholesterol principles are, are the same, are universal, if you wish, yeah. So um, here's the reason... I don't know if I told you this. I, can't, I think I did, but I can't recall. You know, we're here and there talking to people. And uh, Didn't I say to you that, I think I remember saying this, that there was this thing called NCEP, the National Cholesterol Education Project, where physicians were supposed to tell you that if your cholesterol was 199 or less, you were okay. You remember that? Didn't I mention that on our first day? And the reason that Dr. Castelli was so angry about this is that, watch this, 35% of coronary heart disease occurs in people whose total cholesterols are less than 200. One-third of the heart disease in this country occurs under 200. For decades in this country, if your cholesterol was below 240, you were called average. Yeah, average die from heart disease. That was, that was real good. So, NCEP, NCEP2... We call it now. It wasn't called one, but now we call it NCEP2 says not safe till you're below 150 or the ratio is three and a half or less. So I have a I have a risk still at 3.7. But I'll tell you what, that makes me not too unhappy that I'm that close to three and a half. Are you all with me on the idea? And the fact now, the reason they check carotid arteries, this would make sense to you if there's if there's plaque here. There's very likely, there's a high correlation to having plaque here. Y'all follow what I'm saying. And for those of you that can't see, I'm pointing to my neck first and then to my heart. If there's plaque in my neck, there's probably plaque in my heart. So why don't they look at the heart? Because it's jumping around and you can't image it well enough with ultrasound. But the carotid arteries are kind of fastened pretty well in place. And so you can, you can image them quite well. Now, this is the last thing before we get to the cancer issue. We didn't talk about the macrophage. We're only seven minutes into our regular time. Pardon me? They asked me, the hydrotherapy people asked me if I would do that but or could, but the bosses haven't, so. Yeah. Oh, isn't that a cute picture? Not of the not of the bald guy. The well, the partly bald guy. Um, yeah, yeah. I got a picture of a macrophage. Where'd it go? It's right in front of me. I just can't see it. It's crazy. 
Oh, there he is. Here we go. Uh, this is a white blood cell. There are many kinds of white blood cells called the macrophage. It's, it comes from the word macro, which means big. Greek. What's the Greek word for? Yeah, microphia. The phaya is the eater, and the macro is big. Uh, the Greek I learned is not the Greek that people speak today, I would, you know, in, in terms of biblical Greek. But nevertheless, by the way, this is not his left eye. This is not his nose. Can you see where I'm pointing? You don't see my arrow on the screen? This is not his left eye. This is not his left foot. This is not his right foot. This is not his nose. Y'all with me? The white blood cell travels by oozing. I don't know how else to describe it. It just flows. And it is a remarkable creature. It can ooze anywhere in the body. It can ooze right through tissue. It can ooze right through bone. And they're doing this all the time all over your body. Patrolling for stuff that they clean up. And it's just, I tell you, the Creator's handiwork, folks, is just in, incredible. Now, there's another way that macrophage travels, and that's it travels in the blood. But because that's way too fast, the create, this is incredible, friends. The Creator has designed some receptors on the surface of the macrophage that hang on to receptors on the inner lining of the blood vessels. Are you following me? They hang on and let go at a rate so that the macrophage travels slowly while the blood is rushing past. It's amazing. Do you know that I'm sidetracking? Do you know that the world's most respected atheist for 50 years, name is Anthony Flew, F-L-E-W, 22 books, uh, UK Englishman, um, the last book he wrote about two and a half years ago, and then he died about a year later. This was the title. If you can, I should show you a picture of it. There is no God, and the no was crossed out, and an A was put there. The world's most respected atheist. This is incredible, friends. And he's been interviewed. You can Google, you can uh, YouTube the interviews. Anthony F-L-E-W. The world's most respected atheist. Its most able exponent. Hmm? You know what I mean? That's the question I'm about to raise. And this, you can listen to him being asked that question by some Christian authors. And this is his answer. He said, the complexity of the cell. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. Except that there was a God that made it. Now, is that wonderful or not? And I'll tell you what, we are still scratching the surface. It's just that in the last two decades, it's just blown us away with what uh, is now known about that. Now, that was a sidetrack. And... uh, where I, oh yeah oh so, so the so the macrophage travels slowly in the bloodstream. This is amazing, friends, with this incredible mechanism that keeps it from just rushing along with the blood. Just well, um, so what's going on here is this. Where's my wife? She's still negotiating with them. They said yes. 
Can you stand one more of these? Two o'clock? All right. Um, Then let me show you. Let's say that this is an artery, a drawing, drawing of an artery. And etiology means how does this happen? So um, this white is the inner lining, only one cell thick. I talked to you about that. Then there's two layers of muscle. And uh, the plaque actually grows or develops under the intima, under that inner lining, which later can break and let it ooze out, right? And uh, so let's take just as much of it, and it's still going to be a drawing, not, not photographs of actual cells. And I want to show you how that happens. So this is inside. This is the layer of the intima, the one cell layer, and this is muscle. Y'all with me in comparison to this? Are y'all together on what this is like? And so uh, what happens is there is damage to the intima lining from all kinds of possibilities. Cigarette smoke has, cigarette smoke has over 5,000 poisons, and a number of them can damage these cells. Uh, if you have too often too much stress chemicals, stress hormones, you can damage these cells. Um, oxidized. This is the big. This is the big elephant in the room. Oxidized. If you're not smoking, oxidized cholesterol and oxidized fat. What causes it to be oxidized? It's exposed to air. Air has oxygen. And uh, I'll look at that this afternoon with you. No, I'm going to do it this morning. And this afternoon we'll do cancer. Um, I was going to try to squeeze that in this morning, but since we have a little extra time, I'm going to work on this together because it connects more with this. When you eat, when you eat anything that has fat exposed to air, so the, this is this afternoon. It's, it's oxidized. This is why this is why Weimar has taught for 32 years. We need those plant fats. We need them. They're good for us. But don't take them out of the plant. There's other reasons too. leave them in the plant. No, no, uh, George Chen, your friend, George Chen, don't take it out of the plant. Get that olive oil by eating olives. Right. Etc. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, exactly. But what I'm going to show you here now helps lay the foundation for this. So I'm going, to, I'm going to illustrate this damage with a little dent. See the dent? But it's not a dent. It's a chemical insult uh, that either the chemical can attack the surface of the cell or the chemical can get inside the cell and attack it. And the point is the cell gets sick and dies. And when that cell gets sick and dies... This macrophage, uh, this is so elegant, folks. The macrophage has detectors that can sense that there's chemicals traveling in the blood from a dead cell or a dying cell. And he follows those. He oozes along the trail, the smell trail. Y'all with me? Until he arrives at the source of these substances. And he devours this dead cell. 
There's the macrophage. There's the dying or dead cell. Y'all with me? And, and, and the way he does it, he oozes around it. Remember, he's an oozer. <laughs> he oozes around it. Engulfs it. There's a fancy word for this. It's called endocytosis. If you ever took biology 101, it's, it's a big deal. All over the body. Anyway, and when the ooze touches behind, suddenly it's connected and the thing is inside him. Get the idea? And then he has chemicals that dissolve up whatever it was. This garbage, it's garbage, you know. He dissolves it up. And that's how the body, one of the ways the body cleans up germs. In fact, this picture, this is a... This is a microbe right here. This is on a a microscope slide. And this picture is off the front of a textbook on immunology in my library. There's two great worlds of immunology. One of them is the work that the macrophages does do. And uh, he has been able to detect that this right on the macrophage, on the slide, he could smell, if you wish, that thing. And he's on his way over there to engulf it and kill it, if you wish, see. This goes on in our bodies constantly, uh, killing germs and, and other and, and micro, microbes that aren't uh, useful. So there he is. He's now cleaned it up. And then these two cells, this one and this one, communicate with each other with chemicals. And they make a decision as to which of the two cells is going to replicate itself and repair the damage. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I'm telling you, folks... We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I, and I don't have a, a period this week to do this, so let me just say this, friends. I hope, and I, I, I sense this about all of us, we want to do better with our bodies, don't we? In spite of the fact that some mean health reformers have shaken their bony fingers in our face and said, why don't you straighten up? You know, the devil loves to use well-meaning people. Did you know that? Did you get that? He loves to use well-meaning people. And you and I ought to learn not to let well-meaning people that kind of get in our face, we ought to learn not to let that bother us. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, an, an, an unlovely person whom even, whether they mean well or not, but let, let's just, we're, we're supposed to put the best construction on things, aren't we? They mean well, even though they don't come across very well. <laughs> we should learn by God's grace to love those people. And maybe help them learn to be wise and kind and gentle. But you, what I'm driving at is this, folks. You know that there's a big spiritual issue in this question we're discussing. Is that correct? And uh, Ellen White wrote one time, she's, listen to this. She said, beware of what you place in the stomach, lest it banish from the mind high and holy thoughts. Did you get that? I'll look it up for you. It's, I have the CD-ROM on my... Well, I have it copied into my computer. Um, but uh, I have a whole presentation on this topic that's just really meaningful to me because I'll tell you what, folks. If it was just for my health, it would be easy for me to violate principles. But I really do want to honor my Creator. I really do want to honor Him. And I want to learn to have communion with him that's unbroken. And listen, did you hear what Brad Minet quoted at the end of his second presentation here? Was it on Tuesday? 
He gave you two quotes from the spirit of prophecy at the end. Remember that? And one of them said something like this. The devil is in the business. This is a paraphrase now of inventing all kinds of ways to distract us from having the communion with Christ that we so desperately need. And um, the things, the way we treat our body, not just what we eat, folks, the way we treat our bodies in general um, is um, not a distraction, maybe, but it is an, it has the effect of dulling our ability to comprehend spiritual things. What did she say? Banish from the mind what? High and holy thoughts. So for what it's worth, um, you understand this, folks, don't you? That the health message in the Adventist church has become, in certain senses, an anathema. Are you aware of that? We hold classes, my wife and I, we've been doing it all over the world for years. People off the street accept this quicker than Seventh-day Adventists do. I was asked to hold, uh, Neve and I were asked to hold a seminar at a church. I won't mention, of course, the name. A pretty good-sized church. The pastor knows me. We're friends. The health ministry secretary went to him. She talked to us first. We said, we'll try to work out a day. She goes to the pastor and she says, I'd like to have the brackets come. This is what he said. Not because he doesn't like Neva and me. He said, and I almost used her name, which wouldn't have mattered. I'm going to say Joyce. He said, Joyce, our people don't want that. And you could say what was him. It was he. He represents the Well, uh, he, he was right, friends. He, our people don't, in general, want that. And it's the enemy's work. And he has used mean old health reformers to, to hasten on the work. You all following what I'm saying? And, you know, are you like this? Are you a little bit like me, uh, like I am? Um, if, if I start doing something... I make a change in my thinking or a change in my habits and, and I start noticing everybody else who hasn't done this yet. Have you ever done that? And you know what? You know what's in me? A temptation to get mad at those people. Does that ring a bell with you at all? Especially as their pastor. Why don't you guys straighten up? <laughs> But it's true, isn't it, friends? So what God wants to do is live in me so that I am full of kindness, friends. I'm sorry about that. Normally, it doesn't even work here. I get a half a bar here. And so my appeal, folks, is we need to be filled with the presence of Jesus and uh, cooperate with his plan and taking care of our bodies and being ministers to people around us. Amen? Amen. I love that verse in Isaiah chapter 50 that says, The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I might know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. You all know what that's like. You all know what it's like to have someone, some some person who cares about you Speak a word in season. Amen. And and you all want that, don't you? Don't you want to be the kind of a person that everybody you see, the Lord gives you something to, to say or do or somehow interact that is a blessing to those people. And the health message, folks, is a is one of the is one of the big issues in helping us have communion with Christ. 
the fact that you don't get colds as often, that's kind of a minor issue. Are you all with me on that? Whether you die of cancer or not is kind of a minor issue. Sleeping for God is nothing, is it? It's just a little respite for a few minutes. It breaks our hearts for the loved ones we've lost. But the issue, folks, the reason we're here on this earth is to minister to people. Amen. And the devil is doing everything he can to keep us not having a connection with Jesus Christ. So that was free. I'm sorry. I, was, I didn't plan to do that exactly. But uh, Oh, back to the heart disease. So this is a brand new cell. Beautiful. Boy, I'll tell you. By the way, um, I talked yesterday about osteoporosis, the bones. In seven years, all your bones are completely new. Plus or minus. The bone is being taken away and reformed all the time. And... Uh, If our cells could continue replicating, we would have baby skin all our lives. And um, the tree of life. See, our bodies are designed to live forever. And if something got injured, if Adam and Eve were... were, were, I was going to say if they were swatting a mosquito, but if they were... uh, Yeah, if they were doing something and he mashed his hand into a tree, would his hand get hurt? I don't know. I kind of think it might. And, and his body's perfectly designed to heal it. Probably a lot faster than ours heal today. I'm just, I'm just conjecturing now. This is not gospel. And, uh, but the point is that they were designed to live forever because their cells could keep replicating, see. Ours can't. You take a cell from your body somewhere and put it on an auger plate in about 30 replications, it, it stops replicating. Not cancer cells. We have, we have tissue. We have a plates with cancer cells growing that have been growing for 50 years. Mm-hmm. Replicating, 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 replicating. I'll talk about it this afternoon. <laughs> okay. Now, um, if, if there are too many lipids... In the bloodstream, you know what lipids are. Actually, I should say lipoproteins because the lipids are being carried by the lipoproteins, correctly? Correct? You all with me? The trucks? So these are the trucks. How many different kinds of trucks do we know about? Eighteen. And I've just drawn several of them. And uh, <laughs> so when this macrophage comes here to clean this up, Lipid, uh, uh, lipoproteins around are also targets for his oozing. In other words, the body has a system to sort of keep the uh, lipoproteins in check if they should get a little bit too high. Y'all with me in the idea? Because the macrophages can engulf them. In fact, the macrophages have receptors for all the lipoproteins. I shouldn't say all. Well, it really is all, as far as we know. So while he's there, watch this, cleaning up the dead cell, he cleans up these, and he gets so full of these that he can no longer ooze. And he's stuck there. We have a name for it. It's a foam cell. Kind of foamy because of all this lipid inside. Foam cell. And he dies before long. And guess what? He is now garbage for other macrophages to clean up. You all with me? 
And it is the buildup of these dying and dead macrophages that is the plaque. Got it? Now, if that plaque sits there a long time, it, it, it's like petrified wood. Calcium starts replacing dying and other chemicals. You all with me on the idea? And so you get atherosclerosis, hard. Sclerosis means hard. Sclerosis means hard. And it turns out that the young plaque is more dangerous than the old plaque. Does that ring a bell? The young plaque has all this atheromatous, this gooey core that can ooze out through the intima. If the intima becomes unhealthy, did you get that? Unhealthy, like you damage it with some oxidized fat or some oxidized cholesterol, and this stuff oozes out. So uh, you, you know this, the people that get pain are the lucky ones. Did I, did I not mention to you that the... the, 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 the uh, most common uh, symptom for heart disease is sudden death. No warning. If the person gets pain for various reasons, their plaque didn't break, and now it's about closing the artery off, and they get pain, correct? Yeah. So, um, but of course, the good news, I didn't tell you that only 1% of heart attacks today are caused by a plaque that completely closes off the artery. Only 1%. All the other heart attacks are caused by eruptions with the core oozing out into the bloodstream. Y'all connecting with what we saw the first day, if you were here. Okay, a couple of questions. The first day I probably said that the studies show that bypass surgery does not lengthen life in comparison to just giving people nitroglycerin or other drugs. And you know that the average bypass surgery today is around, what is it, around 70,000 by now or maybe more, something like that. There was another comment here. What causes the eruption? That is a very interesting question that has been studied intensively and still is, but it's essentially an unhealthy, we call it the cap, which is really the intima, right, over this plaque. Uh, And... The chief contributor seems to be things like oxidized fats and so forth that would start heart disease to begin with, but also make the plaque, the intima, uh, not as, uh, what shall I say? Uh, there's a word I'm after. It's integrity. That doesn't have the integrity. Okay, CDF 56, paragraph 1 where she says, beware of what you place in the stomach. That's not the original source, but that's good. CDF is Councils on Diets and Foods. Okay, CD, I'm sorry, CD. Somehow in my head it was CDF. Councils on Diets and Foods, page 56, paragraph 1. Thank you for that. Well, um, oh, what I wanted to say finally was, would it make sense to you then that uh, if you change the amount of lipoproteins in your bloodstream that the macrophages could slowly clean up this plaque. And didn't we see that the first day? Remember that Dean Ornish took these 12 men and the other 12 men and by how much percent did the plaque decrease in one year? They got a 5.5% decrease in plaque in 12 months. You say, that's not very much. How am I doing, dear? 
I have a few more minutes, don't I? Or am I supposed to quit? Oh, I think I'm supposed to quit. You better, you better start. Yeah. So the question is: Here's an interesting, here's an interesting point. We get people to come to our programs or Weimar's programs, and in a few days their pain is gone. We don't think that the plaque reversed that quickly. We think that for reasons that I don't have time to explain, that the circulation in general has improved so much so that even though the plaque is still there, they're, they're not getting the angina. But, the, but we, the research is quite clear. It takes serious effort to reverse plaque. And I told you that we put Ornish and, other, and the rest of the people do the same thing. They put people on, they bring their fat intake down to 10% of their calories. Remember that? And for that, you can only use plants, and there's some plants you can't use. What are the categories you can't use? Right, right. So, um, it's a pretty strict regimen to get the plaque to disappear. Pretty strict regimen. Yes? There was a physician, this was years ago, that went to Weimar, because his, his physician said, go home and take care of your affairs. You are so clogged, there's nothing can be done. And this is what he and his wife said, within three months at Weimar, he went back to his position and had the test redone, and he was as clear as if the day was born. Yeah, I, I, it's a neat story. It doesn't fit with the research, but I'd still like to know. I'd like to see the, I'd like to see the test results before and after to see what the doctor meant. And, 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 of course, it was translated by the other physician. And So you have to be careful about these kind of things uh, because when you, when you get down to the bottom of it, it certainly was a good benefit, and, and doubtless he got reversal. But the research shows that the reversal takes time. It, it's, 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 it's slow. By the way, it took 30 years to build up, so maybe it might take a few years to, to go away. But Nathan Pritikin, while she's doing the last thing here. Okay. Nathan Pritikin was diagnosed. Did I mention him day one? You all know the name, correct? If you didn't, you do now. Nathan Predikin was a Jewish engineer diagnosed back in about, I'm going to just guess the date, I think it was the late 50s, diagnosed with heart disease, not with angiograms. We didn't have them then. We used symptomatic. And his doctor said, you're going to die, go home and get your house in order. And, and Predikin, a very bright guy, it's not fair. Jewish people are a lot smarter than the rest of us. But anyway, uh, you know why, don't you? God's people, he blessed them. But one day... I mean, we're all God's people by name right now. One day we're all going to be God's people. We're spiritual Israelites. We're not as smart as the regular Israelites. <laughs> now, where was I going? Oh, oh, a Pritikin, a very smart guy, wasn't going to go down without a fight, and he started reading the literature. And he found in, that in 1917, some Russian scientist fed rabbits a terrible diet, and they got heart disease. Kill the rabbit, open up the heart. They didn't have x-rays to do it then. And so they do it with a bunch of rabbits, and they sacrifice one or two here and there to see how things are going. He changed their diets back to regular Purina rat chow. I mean, back to regular whatever rabbits eat. I mean, the rabbit chow. Rabbit chow. <laughs> their heart disease went away. This was this obscure study that written in Russian. And he found several things like that in this pursuit. And he started saying to himself, if this kind of thing happens to animals, it's very likely to happen to people. And he put himself on a, ra- on a rabbit diet. That is to say, plants unrefined. You never see rabbits 
extracting oil from the food they eat. Is that correct? <laughs> Not even a Greek rabbit. <laughs> so, um, I tell you what we got to do quickly in closing here. That's right. She has. She can let me have a few minutes. This is a little fast, but we're going to do it anyway. I, she said, are there some people who have carotid arteries that is not due to buildup and plaque? I think I know what she meant. Everybody has carotid arteries. The question is, 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 the, artery, is the artery compromised in, in uh, uh, circulation because of something other than buildup of plaque? Possibly a tumor, possibly, but I would say 99% of the time it's going to be the buildup of atherosclerosis. But let me just quickly uh, get the right thing on the screen here if I can think of where I want to go. And... Um, just show you several pictures and, and an interesting thing in closing. Uh, here we go. Oh, yeah, that's, this is it. Now I have this discussion where I try to help you understand uh, how these things are put together. But I'm going to just jump to one spot here. Um, let me tell you this much. This W-shaped thing here, you all with me? Hello, everybody. This is, this is a fatty acid. It's an omega fatty acid because um, the Greek letter omega, the, small, the lowercase omega, looks like a W. You all know omega fatty acids, right? And the problem is fatty acids that have bends in them oxidize easily. The fatty acids that are straight don't oxidize. And what makes them straight is they're saturated and what makes them bent is that they're unsaturated. So in plants, the fats are mostly bent. Y'all with me? And they are easily oxidized. Animal, You could put some suet on your back porch and let the birds peck at it for two years and it still wouldn't be, it still wouldn't be, what would you call it? Rancid isn't the word, but it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, uh, there's a word I'm after deteriorate or get bad. Spoil. <clears throat> How about that? Now, um, so oxygen attacks these attacks the fatty acids at the bends and it breaks them up into pieces. And the fatty acids are now short fatty acids and they have an odor and a taste that's very Undesirable is good, but not as good as I wanted. But and the and the word we use is rancid. Now listen, friends. Long before you can taste or smell it, you've got rancidity in the fat. The minute that ta- fat is taken out of the plant, it starts oxidizing, just like that. Y'all with me on that? Immediately. And you know this that if the fat isn't kept cold, it gets rancid more quickly. Is that correct? In fact, you can't buy cornmeal in the store that's not defatted because the corn oil gets rancid so rapidly it wouldn't be on the store shelf two weeks and it would be rancid. So you can't buy cornmeal. You can't make whole you can't make whole grain corn bread unless you grind the grind the corn yourself because you just can't buy it. Well, unless you had some special store. So there's the pieces and they are rancid. By the way, I'll come back to this this afternoon. Those we okay? There we go. Those are free radicals. 
they are actually carcinogens. Bad news. Anyway, let me show you something. Do you remember from your academy chemistry that if you're mixing a couple of things together and they go bubble bubble or whatever, chemicals, that if, you, if the mixture was hotter, that the, that the bubbles would come faster? Are you aware of that? The rule is that for every 10 degrees you raise the temperature, you get twice the speed of a chemical reaction. And so, um, let's say I'm going to take some corn oil or some olive oil or whatever kind of oil at room temperature. Is it oxidizing at room temperature? Otherwise, it would never get rancid, right? Now, 68 degrees Fahrenheit or 20 degrees centigrade. And supposing I raise, supposing I'm going to fry something. And please don't misunderstand this. The reason I didn't take French toast this morning is this reason. We're going to raise that up to 450 degrees, that oil, and, 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 and fry some bread in it. Is that correct? To make some French toast? How many, how many tens are between 20 and 230? How many? How many increases of 10 degrees? No. 21 times. 21 times you raise the temperature 10 degrees. Is that correct? And every one of those, you double the reaction rate. Now, is, is oxidization a chemical reaction? Absolutely. Some of you aren't saying yes and nodding, but you are listening. There was one man that was listening with his eyes closed. At night, when I wake up and my wife reads to me, I close my eyes while she reads. I hear every word. And when she's done, I can't remember one of them. Do you, do you, know, do you know the effect? 20, listen, listen, friends. 21 times we're doubling the oxidization rate. Let me show you what that amounts to. You've got to multiply 2 times 2. 21 times. Y'all with me? The computer does it for you real easy. The answer is the oxidization rate of that oil in your pan is now 2 million times greater. This is not very smart. Would you agree? Ellen White said to her maid, we don't fry anything here. So one time the maid, now I don't know that Ellen White knew this, I think the Lord, excuse me, the Lord knew this. Is that correct? One time the maid painted some baked potatoes, painted some potatoes that she was going to bake with some oil. And she put them in the oven and Ellen White said to her, we don't fry here. Did you, did you get it? What, what is Ellen White saying? It's the, sa- it's the same effect. Y'all with me? Yeah, the cook said, I'm not frying, I'm baking them. And so um, these are just some of. Yeah, Helen White said, we don't fry. <laughs> so, yeah, we heard it from a physician friend. But uh, the point is, these are the, these, this is some of the reason, folks, behind why the Weimar physicians have taught for 32 years. Eat the fat in the plant and don't take it out. Y'all with me on that? What about peanut butter? It's an interesting question. I should show She's going to... And then you can 
Okay, peanut butter after ice cream. Maybe while I'm making peanut butter. Yeah, that's a good point you're raising. And okay, okay, thank you. I just made the mistake of the day. I'm in trouble with the PA guy, and I do apologize. It's kind of heavy. Here we go. Get a little closer to the ice cream. I like the idea. (laughs) This is healthy ice cream. We serve it at our house four or five times a week. (laughs) Or more. Or more. (laughs) Y'all ought to come to our house. It's better than you think. Yes. Page 99. Maybe you should do with the talking because you've got the All right. Um, she's put in there uh, cashew nuts, almond milk. We have several recipes. Is it 99 or 90? The ice cream recipe, 99 or 90? I can't. No, no, 99 or 90. Turn to the page. 99. There's several recipes for ice cream in there. So she's doing one of them. Pardon? Cashews, coconut milk, sometimes brown rice, sweetened with uh, dates, honey, agar nectar, agave nectar, so today for your snack, you get ice cream. Not very much. Now, I've heard that some people are arriving just in time for the snacks. I've heard that. Hadn't noticed it. But that's okay. That's what I usually do. She cooks and I arrive for the meal. (laughs) Okay, dear, that's long enough. This tub has been in the freezer. You all know probably. Most of you know this. Instead of using water, uh, salt, and ice, you buy this thing and you get it real cold. And that's the source of the cold to make the ice cream. And the reason she's putting ice in there instead of plain water, she wants to get the mix up to the proper amount of liquid. You all right? You're with me? It says this in the cookbook. And if the mix is real cold... It's more likely to make good, not good ice cream, but it's likely to get thick. There are people who try this over and over and over, and it doesn't work for them because this wasn't cold enough or the mix was too warm. That's good, dear, for just ice. So you put this tub on this little motor, put the, put the paddle in, the lid, and pour in the... Oh, two speeds, dear. Go this faster speed. Why not? Huh? 
Now, she made some of this last night in case this didn't turn to ice cream in front of your eyes. Now listen, um, God gave us this wonderful principle. He says, whatever he asks you to give up, he offers in its place something better. And in another place, she said something vastly better. You want to give up watching movies? He has something better in his place. Amen. I don't know. This, this, this isn't fair to preach to you, but folks, the standards that we have known in this church have just fallen apart. It's tragic. It's tragic. Pastors are preaching from the pulpit that it's, you know, they're talking about this movie and that movie. I was raised being told that movies weren't good for me. Do you think the devil uses them as a distraction? Anyway, the point is, don't take something away. Here's my point. If I'm going to tell somebody you can't have this, what's my responsibility? To have something better in its place. And God has blessed Neva. You don't know this about her. Since she's gone, I can say that she's without a peer. This gal knows how to make healthy food taste good like you can't imagine. God has just blessed her. Of course, she's been at it for 40 years, and she was the food service manager in our two vegetarian restaurants. I say ours. They belong to the conference for 10 years. And the public walked in there uh, and kept coming back for 10 years for the ice cream and everything else. So um, it's a blessing that you can have something really good. And I hope you got this point yesterday. My A1C is very low, even though we have desserts that have some sugar in them. I believe it, friends, because we're following God's plan. Y'all with me on that idea? And we have desserts at every meal. And sometimes we have ice cream for breakfast on waffles. And sometimes the same day we'll have ice cream on top of apple pie or something else. Do you like that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Peanut butter first. Peanut butter. Uh, I'm going to show you the peanut butter cookie thing if I can find it on the DVD. Anyway, uh, this is very interesting, a very interesting question. You take your blender and you put nuts in there in liquid and you can leave that blender on until it boils and you will never see any oil rise to the surface. We have never in 40 years seen a drop of oil come to the surface. But if you put those peanuts... These are roasted peanuts, although I think it would work if they were raw, dear. Anyway, we roast the peanuts lightly. All peanut butter is that way. And you put them in that food processor with this knife, and it's dry. And if you leave that knife whacking around, you know what I'm talking about, spinning wheel. If that knife whacks long enough, it will start to release the fat, and the the peanut meal becomes peanut butter. Y'all with me? Because the fat is released. Now, I didn't say this to you, but in the plant, the fat is protected by a kind of a fibrous matrix. It's protected from oxygen. Now, if you leave a plant, especially a high-fat plant like a walnut, long enough at room temperature, will it become rancid? Yeah. So it's not perfect protection, but it's pretty good protection, right? Very little oxidization if you take the plant and eat it without letting it sit too long. If you dry it and freeze it, dry it or freeze it or can it, you you certainly stop that process as well. So the reason the Weimar physicians way back in the early days said no peanut butter was because the oil is released. Y'all with me? Now, 
my wife and I uh, compromise here and there a little. It's dangerous stuff, folks, because what happens when you compromise a little? Yeah. We make our own peanut butter. We don't buy any. And she turns the machine off just as soon as you can spread the peanut butter, just barely. And then she only makes a small amount. And then we keep it in the fridge. Now, what's that all about? Why does she make it ourselves? Because she can turn it off, right, soon, right? Why does she make a small amount? Because we use it up before very much oxidization. Why does she keep it in the fridge? Because every 10 degrees you lower the temperature decreases the reaction rate by how much? By one half. You all with me? So if you keep that down near freezing, in fact, sometimes we do keep, we keep it in the freezer. Sometimes you have to let it sit for a while before it's spread, of course. Now, so I agree with you that that's a little bit of a compromise. So we use it sparingly. Listen, I would like the peanut butter about that thick on my toast. And I spread it so thin, it's almost transparent. But the taste is still there a little bit. So that's our compromise, guilty as charged. Any more questions about peanut butter? But I hope you got the point, folks. When you blend in water, you do not release the fat. You all with me? Because the water is like a lubricant for that sharp blade and it doesn't break up that fibrous tissue. You got it? So it's a pretty neat way to prepare stuff without getting the fat oxidized. Do you ever use cinnamon? Do we ever use cinnamon? It's an interesting question. The answer is no. Uh, the scientists, including the Adventist science that have looked at this, don't know why Ellen White said not to do that. Uh, we don't know why for sure she said not to use baking powder. I looked in my index and, and I only found one reference yeah. to cinnamon, but it didn't say do not use it. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I got the clear impression I'd have to, I can't quote you the quote, but I'm not trying to lay this on people. By the way, friends, let me finish this. There are things that my wife and I follow from the spirit of prophecy that we don't yet know the science about. And it, we, it may not be necessary because in Ellen White's day, for example, baking powder was not balanced. Balanced means there's as much alkaline as there is acid. So there's no acid or alkaline left over after the, after the chemical reaction takes place that makes the bread rise or the cake rise. You all with me? And we don't know if that's what she was referring to. Y'all tracking with me? We don't know that that was the problem that God led her to say that. So we don't use it. And there are some substitutes that you can use. They're not as neat, but they work. And Neva has worked out ways to bake cakes and all kinds of things, um, cornbread and everything else, with, without uh, using the baking powder. But what I was going to go say next was this, friends. You understand that even for yourself and especially for other people, I don't think it's wise to lay all these things on these people on people at once. Um, it's too much. And uh, listen, folks, there are there are some big issues, some big elephants, and then there are some little elephants. I think cinnamon is a very little ele- elephant, although I don't know that for sure. Uh, you know what the two big elephants are in this in this in this realm? It's activity and plant-based foods. Y'all with me on that? Those are the big elephants. You could do a lot of other things over time that would be good for you, but be careful that you don't lay to... You don't want your kids to leave home and go to McDonald's, do you? 
And uh, now be careful. See, here's the problem with that. You can you can take a step in the right direction and stay there the rest of your life, right? So you, we just need to pray that God will give us wisdom. Does he? Does, does Ellen might say this? Does she say, if you have determined to do nothing in any line to displease God, He will show you just what course to pursue? Does she say that? Yes, she does. Desire of Ages, page six sixty nine. Now listen, she's not saying you never make a mistake. She just says it's your determination to do right. Are you determined to do right and you still fall during the day a few times? Say yes. Yes. The falling is not a problem with God. What he wants is the determination in your heart to follow him. Amen. And under that condition, she says he promises to show us just what course to pursue. So be careful, especially be patient with other people. Amen. And be patient with yourself. Huh? And especially be patient with your kids. Right? Now I have a caveat. If you're sick, if you have diabetes, if you have heart disease, um, I say to people, if it were me, I would make a lot of steps in a hurry. My tissue is being destroyed. I'm at risk, etc., etc., right? If you have too many pounds, I think you're sick. Forgive me for being so blunt. I don't know if you know this, folks. Increased weight is a huge risk factor for breast cancer. Are you aware of that? Yeah. It's uh, everywhere you turn. Uh, these extra pounds are not good news. Uh, science. I'm talking science today. I'm not talking spirit of prophecy. So, but, but be patient with each other, folks. Please be patient with each other. And don't go put something on the table at the uh, potluck and say, Ha! This is vegan! I don't even like the V word. you remember that? I don't like that word. Uh, for several reasons, but but folks, put wonderful food out there. You know, everybody in our church now knows. Neva never says a word; she just puts it out there. And let me tell you something, folks: the kids in our church fall over each other to get invitations to Neva's table. Huh? Y'all with me? You've only had a few samples. Are they any good? You can't believe what it's like, folks, to eat at this woman's table. It, I mean, phew, I I am the most blessed man in the world. Overweight. Ah, very insightful. Very insightful. You don't have to keep talking. You don't have to keep talking. I only know of one benefit for having too many pounds. It's somewhat helpful for bones. And uh, But you know what God's plan is for bones? It's not overweight. It's plenty of hard work. Is that correct? Strenuous, hard work, has no bad side effects, and extra pounds has hundreds. Everywhere we turn in the scientific world, the extra weight is just saying, don't do this. Now listen, be patient with yourself if you have too many pounds. You can't lose them overnight. You can't, but you can lose two pounds a week, correct? Listen, a guy, a guy came to Weimar recently, 668 pounds. Take two or three steps, sit down for a rest. They took, he's quite a comical fellow. They took a picture of him with six of our academy boys hanging around on him. The six of them weighed the same together as he weighed by himself. Kind of a clever picture. And he was there for several sessions, lost 140 pounds. The, the challenge, of course, is for him to keep doing it at home. Big challenge. Big challenge. We need to help each other, don't we? Not criticize each other. A question. 
Oh, not butters. If you're making the own, which is the least objectionable? I don't think you could pick one. Um, well, and so she said the least fat, and I was saying the least objectionable. In in uh, the only issue, in my opinion, with the nut butters is is the oxidization of the fat. And so the problem is that once the fat is released from the nut, it's going to be oxidized, and so we should use it, if at all, sparingly, in my opinion. And like I say, keep it in the fridge and do everything you can to minimize it. By the way, have you ever noticed that the, the peanut butter you make at the store when you pull the handle down? Have you noticed how dry that peanut butter is? I think it's a very good source because it's made fresh right there, right? And then you could take it home and put it in the refrigerator. Uh, I think it's, if you don't make it yourself, it's a very good option because it is such dry peanut butter. Dry meaning not much oil has been released. Like rancid. Well, yeah. His comment for those who are listening without benefit of, of video is that uh, who knows how long the nuts in the store have been sitting there to get rancid by themselves. Um, yeah. yeah, and maybe the roasting makes it even more uh, difficult to, to keep it from being oxidized. So uh, maybe what Neva's doing is the best thing. I'm just noticing that it's very dry when it comes in the store. So, Well, at, while you're talking to them, I'm going to find it, I hope. Oh, we're out of time. We have a few minutes. I got to quit talking. Why don't we talk this afternoon? Neva needs to talk for a few minutes to talk about the ice cream. Hey, it's turning to ice cream. What a nice plan. I was just going to have just you show the peanut butter cookie demo because we're we're going to demonstrate. You're going to taste peanut butter cookies, and then this is a variation of the peanut butter cookie. Peanut butter cookie is all it is is two cups of just. You know, dry roasted peanuts, one cup of quick oatmeal. It's in the cookbook, correct? Yes. Or flour, but I used the oatmeal in this recipe. And a half teaspoon of salt. You whiz that in the food processor for one minute. And while it's whizzing, you take a half cup of honey and warm it a little bit. I use the microwave, but, you know, I warm it a little bit. And then pour that into the food processor with the... Other stuff that's whizzing around, and it just goes into a nice ball of dough. And that's the cookies. So then I just divide that up into 12 balls, put on a cookie sheet, flatten them out, use a little fork, you know, to make the, the marks. And But then there's a variation. You can use other nuts. You can use almonds. This one is, instead of two cups of peanuts, it's one cup of coconut and a half cup each of almonds and walnuts. And uh, then the honey. <laughs> this one I call it Christmas cookies because it rolls out and you can you can roll this one out too, the peanut butter. You can roll it out into a you know dough like pie dough and you can stamp it with uh, cutouts. And the children help me make Christmas cookies with those and love them. Of course, my our grandson's favorite all-time cookie is the peanut butter cookie. His granddad, too. I think he takes after his grandpa. By the way, the only mistake that I know of that Neva ever makes is she tends to burn the peanut butter cookies. So after she burnt this batch, she let me cook this batch. This is the best one. 
Oops, I touched it. I'll have to well, eat it. Well, I had done the, uh, I had done the the error in the, you know, these hot um, convection ovens in there, and usually I cook these for maybe eight to ten minutes. It depends your oven. That convection in, in there has a real strong fan, and so these were only cooked four. So yeah, we only did those for four minutes. These are the ones that got overdone. So and this third one here, I call this shortcake. <laughs> It's um, in your book. It's called Shortcake, and it's just uh, whole wheat pastry flour. Actually, I mix some white with it and a little of my baking powder. I use that energy baking powder or the feather light baking powder and um, a little salt and then coconut milk. I just mix coconut milk in there to make it kind of thick and into a dough. And scoop that onto a cookie sheet with an ice cream scoop, like the tofu walnut balls. <laughs> Flatten them out, and uh, I have a slick way of flattening them out too. You put some saran wrap over the mounds, or bake magic, or bake magic, another sheet of that Jake bake magic, and then just take the bottom of a glass and press with that saran wrap over it. Just press over each cookie; it goes into a nice flat circle. Then you can take your fork and make marks if you want or whatever. It's, it's quick. <laughs> now listen, friends. Ra- raise your right hand and repeat after me. Everybody. I promise. Now just listen to the rest of it. Not to say anything about what the cook cooked this morning. Don't, you know, the fact that she fried the French toast. Please don't misunderstand that. Well, I fry French toast all the time, too. But she, she doesn't do it in oil. She does it on a... She does it on a Teflon. You follow me? I was telling you that's why I didn't take the French toast. Um, because that fat is just so highly oxidized when you heat it. Y'all with me in this? That lady has broken her neck. And she's a precious lady and need in nothing but our thanks and praise. Y'all with me? So I apologize that I made a reference there. But there's something you need to think about, folks. Because these, these um, oxidized fats are carcinogens. And um, there's a lot of... And see, Adventists, especially vegetarians, use a lot of oil instead of lard and butter. It's not good, folks. When we take it out of the plant, we get more cancer because of it. It's a pretty big issue. Ben? Yeah. Well, maybe a step in the right direction. But uh, we, by the way, we make French fries. We bake them. They're just fabulous. They are just fabulous. She fries it on a Teflon pan with no oil. She has a. It's in the book. There, there's yeah, yeah. The French toast. No French toast. She was asking. We got to quit this talking and start this eating. Now. And then ice cream. Oh, whew. I'm sorry. You can only get a little spoonful, folks. If you come to our house, there's plenty of ice cream. Uh, the question is, what about roasting the nuts? We think you should roast them lightly for this reason. The, the fat is fairly well protected in the nut, quite well protected. But to, to cook them real hot for a long time would 
in, we, we don't have good science for this. We don't know for sure, but my suspicion is that it's going to increase oxidization. So lightly, lightly roasted. Yeah, lightly roasted. Okay, you guys, let's have some ice cream on strawberries and shortcake, right? One little teaspoon of ice cream. Even the people who came late, you get some. It's all right. It's all right. See you at 2 o'clock.